Welcome to the Eagle and Child podcast, where we share the stories and thoughts of church history's heroes to inspire and equip the church of today. I'm your host, Leila Nahavandi. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello and welcome to the Eagle and Child podcast. Uh, we are so honoured to see you today, so honoured to have you with us. I'm super excited about this episode and about my next guest. We are going to be looking at William J. Seymour, an absolute hero uh, of the Azusa Street Revival. And I'm super excited to be looking at him and his life and his legacy because at the moment of this recording, we're really seeing revival sort of start to break breakout in America. God is stirring something up in the nations. And so I can't wait to just dive into his story and how he can uh, impact and influence us in the 21st century church of today. And so honored and so privileged also to have our guest with us. His name is uh, Pastor Quinton Carter, and he is the director of Youth for the Nations, which is an incredible ministry. Pastor Quinton, can you tell us maybe a little bit about Youth for the Nations, just if anyone hasn't come across it before? Absolutely. Uh, Seriously, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor to just be able to meet you. And Mm -hmm. I love what you're doing and love this podcast. Um, But Youth for the Nations is based out of Christ for the Nations Institute, um, which is in Dallas, Texas. And Youth for the Nations is a 30 plus year legacy of seeing the next generation encounter the presence of God and be equipped for revival. And so it was birthed in 1990 by uh, Mama Frida Lindsay, um, who was really the pioneer of a lot of what took place at Christ for the Nations, her and her husband, Gordon Lindsay. Um, But Mama Frida, she was like 70, 72 years old, and she had a burden in her heart for the next Mm -hmm. generation. And she said, we got to do something. And so at that age, you know, to birth a youth movement. (laughs) And so, uh, and it started. So it started in 1990 and uh, it's been going since and just a a beautiful legacy. And so I'm honored now to be the, uh, I'm actually the ninth director um, of Youth for the Nations. And so it's been built over uh, decades of just faithful men and women of God that have uh, stewarded the presence of God. And then uh, what our biggest heart is for the next generation to experience God's presence and to be equipped Mm. for revival. And so um, every summer we get to host four to 5,000 teenagers uh, from across the U.S. as well as other nations. I mean, this summer, I think we're having people from Peru, Israel, um, Bulgaria. Um, It's just unreal, the hunger, the demand, um, and what God's doing in the nations, what God's doing in the earth in such a time as this. So um, it's our honor. And uh, me and my wife, uh, we're honored to, to be the directors. It's a blessing. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us that background and um, for all the ministry and the work that you guys do. Uh, It's obviously changing so many lives and changing America and the nations of the world. Um, So Pastor Quinton, I'm so excited um, to dive into William J. Seymour. Can you tell us, yeah, what a hero. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about um, his background, his biography, his spiritual formation? Where did um, Daddy Seymour come from? Yeah, so William J. Seymour um, Mm. is a arguably the most influential African American figure on religious history, uh, specifically in America. You know, you could argue a bit worldwide, you know, or throughout all of history of Christianity, but um, for America's religious history, he's I mean, even some would say he's more significant than Martin Luther King Jr. Um, And he was really the pioneering voice of a uh, of a movement of Pentecostal outpouring. And so um, he was born in 1870. And obviously in 18, those late 1800s in America, slavery had just been abolished. It was abolished in 1864. But we all know that just because it was abolished doesn't mean everybody liked it or uh, that everything was now free and everything was just, you know, available. So he was born into this backdrop of the Civil War being over, 
His dad was a African-American troop in the Civil War. Um, and he traveled, he fought with the Northern Army to fight against slavery. Um, and he fought along different Southern states. So he fought in Florida. He fought in uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, and he made a stop in Louisiana in New Orleans. And um, it's said that he actually kind of got sick um, from some type of mosquito, malaria type situation. And so um, he actually, but at the same time, he had gotten a young lady pregnant. Um, and so, uh, and that's where a lot of that, the family started. So he was born, William J. Seymour was born in uh, Louisiana. Um, and in that backdrop of, uh, you know, just freed black people that his parents both were former slaves. And so the other thing that's significant about his formation is coming out of that and into finding, you know, so much poverty. Um, by the time their family uh, was uh, kind of documented or recorded of how much money they had, um, his mom, and he was the oldest of, I believe it was nearly uh, five, at least five children. And as he, as the family was recorded, they had one bedstead, they had one old mattress and one, um, one uh, uh, dresser, and that's all that they had to their name. And so when they amounted how much money they had, and this was in about 1896, uh, when they amounted how much money they had, they had about 55 cents. And wow. so, um, so that was what was collectively in their, in their uh, possessions. So William J. Seymour, growing up in the South, um, he had a lot of uh, exposure to Christianity. He was, um, his parents were married by a Methodist pastor. Um, he was baptized in a Roman Catholic church um, yeah. as an infant, but then his parents were buried at a Baptist church. Um, wow. and so, so he kind of had just, the denominations. yeah, just a bit going on, <laughs> yeah. but he never gave his life to the Lord or truly had that surrendering moment until he moved up North. And when he moved North, he came of age, you know, that 20, 18 to 20 year old that he's like, I'm ready to get out of the South. And the North is where the jobs are. The North is where black people are more accepted or at least have more opportunity. And so he moved up to Ohio, Indiana and began to get jobs, you know, most of the time as a uh, as a waiter at big fancy hotels or, or different things like that. And it was while he was up north that he had started having these encounters and a lot of his spiritual formation started. And wow. so um, he had an encounter with a uh, Church of God group called the Evening Light Saints. And um, the Evening Evening Light Saints just believed that they were living in the twilight of history, in the midnight moment of history, and that God was coming back. And it made yeah. such a huge impression on him that he had a heart and a burden for, man, we got to reach people. We've got to, we got to preach the gospel. And so under this church of God type group, um, he received ordination. He received um, the call of God um, as well as he began to travel a bit um, preaching the gospel. Um, and so, man, we could, we could just keep going on with this formation because, because uh, really it's a whole journey but it's during this time that he has this impression on his heart to surrender to God's call. But what's interesting is at the same time of this, he also has this fight with malaria um, that uh, that nearly. Uh, oh, sorry, not malaria, smallpox. He has this fight with smallpox that nearly takes his life. And um, and this is early. So by the, about this time, this is about the early 1900s that this is happening. Wow. 1900 into 1902. And, uh, and he's having this battle with smallpox and, uh, it ends up leaving him scarred to where he has one, um, his left eye is good to go and his other eye isn't. So he kind of, you know, is kind of corroded and then he has scars on his face. So 
forever, people knew him as this black guy that had a beard and he grew out all his beard just to cover up the scars. And, um, and then he just continued to preach, continue accepting the call of God. And then eventually he crossed paths uh, with probably the most notable figure for him, which was Charles Parham. And, uh, and, and that's where it gets crazy. And so, yeah. yeah. Wow. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what happened when he met Charles Parham? Yeah. So, and now let me flip it to Charles Parham because Charles Parham is really the figure um, in history that is noted for establishing for us what is the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he established what's ascribed to him is finding in scripture that the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues. And so this is this was kind of his track. So uh, Charles Parham was born in 1870. Um, Oh, my goodness. You know what? Let me let me correct something, though, for you. Um, William J. Seymour was born in 1866. Okay, so it's a bit older. Yeah, 1866 or 67, one of those, whereas Charles Parham was born in 1870. So forgive me there. Um, But uh, Charles Parham was born in 1870. He gave his life to the Lord at about in about 1886 under a Methodist group. And uh, he started um, uh, studying at a Methodist kind of Bible study school. Um, and as he's growing in his faith, he begins to have this hunger for where are the things that we see in the Bible? Where are the things that we see the apostles doing? Why don't we see this in the church today? Why don't we see um, the outpouring of the speaking in tongues? Why don't we see the man- manifested signs, wonders, and miracles? Where where are these things in the body of Christ? Now, he's having this awakening but also a kind of across the board in um, a lot of the religious circle, there's this, what happens kind of through church history is there are awakenings, there's movements, and then there's slumps. And these slumps kind of end up happening to where it's not like necessarily things go hundred years back, but it's that they get comfortable and the church gets comfortable. And so the church stops um, seeing this fervor in this passion that they saw in an awakening. And so wow. by about this time, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, traditionalism, a lot of religiousness in the body of Christ, especially in America. And it feels more like it's for people that kind of have a so- certain social status. So a lot of poor people, um, former slaves, different people like that, they couldn't identify with the body of Christ at that time. And at the same time, they had this longing for something, something feels like it's missing. Um, And so Charles Parham, and he's a white man, um, he has this longing as well. He's like, where is the Holy Spirit? So he actually ends up leaving out of this Methodist group that he was a part of, um, that in the school that he was studying at, to pursue what he believed was the New Testament church. And he find, he ends up finding what is the apostolic faith. And the apostolic faith is just simply this, that we have the faith, we want the faith that the apostles had. So what the mm-hmm. apostles operated in, what the apostles moved in, in the New Testament, that's what we want to see. Mm-hmm. And so Charles Parham begins that journey and ends up coming into about, the late 1800s into the 1900s. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so by about this time in 1900, he starts a, uh, he starts a Bible school to study Mm -hmm. for the Holy spirit to really press in for what, what does the whole, what's the doctrine on the Holy spirit? Why don't we see it taking place? Mm -hmm. And he starts a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And Mm -hmm. so in Topeka, Kansas, um, this Bible (laughs) School has about 40 students. And um, and it's, it's, it's a crazy, crazy story because they just all come because they're just like, let's study the Bible, let's grow, let's learn. And yeah. their biggest priority was New Testament church and 
this this fire, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What mm-hmm. is this? Where's the baptism mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit? How does it happen? So wow. by the end of 1900s, in December of 1900, he is going on a trip to uh, evangelize and preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And as he before he's going off, he talks to some of his students and he tells them to look through the gospels and look through the book of Acts, primarily the book of Acts, mm-hmm. and look for every every moment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where it says they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or receive ye the Holy Ghost. Wherever it says that, he said, find me a common denominator. Find me what happens in every account. What's something that is common and that connects all of them? That's what we need to look for. So he goes on this trip for a few few days. All the students kind of start to study in groups or study on their own, and they all arrive at the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so William uh, Charles uh, Parham comes back, and this is towards the end of December in 1900, and uh, and they're all giddy and excited <laughs> to talk to him about what they found. And he says, "Well, what? Tell me what what's going on? What what you guys find?" And he said that uh, they, they began to speak to him as they said, we we found what is the common denominator. And we believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is marked by the speaking in other tongues. Mm, so wow. he's like, well, show me the references. It really only shows that in three of the accounts. There's five accounts in the book of Acts where mm. people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or baptism of the Holy Spirit, but only three specifically say, and they pray, they spoke in other tongues. So there's two other accounts where he's like, okay, explain these ones to me. What do you mean you see that there? How do you see that there? Mm. They say, well, it doesn't explicitly say that they prayed in other tongues, but it does give us the understanding that what follows out of this encounter, it changed the city. And people begin to notice the difference of who they were, as well as the people that they were able to reach. And we believe that that was because they were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them enablement. Because the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we know it, right? Peter stands up. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. But he begins to say, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he begins to release this over, over the people. But the before he stands up, all these people from gathered all over different nations, they hear the wondrous mm-hmm. works of God in their own tongues. And they hear it from people that never knew their language. Wow. So this kind, that kind of effect of people mm-hmm. hearing the Holy Spirit speaking God's word through people in, in mm-hmm. that they know they do not know their language. They don't speak our dialect, but yet they're speaking it perfectly. Wow. That type of uh, impact happened at all those types of accounts in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And so that's where Charles Parham's like, oh my goodness. Okay, so we've got to press in and believe for God to baptize us in the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. with the ability to speak in other tongues. Wow. So gets even crazier. I love it. It's so exciting. (laughs) Um, And so he, uh, this is, so this is the end of December, 1900. And they get to New Year's Eve and they're doing what is called a watch night service. Do you know what a watch night service is? Is it when you go all the way through the night? Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So it's just that, you know, that old school service, you know, and it's like, come on, let's pray into the new year. (laughs) You know, we're going to, we're going to anoint this new year, all of that. Yeah. So they're having one of those, um, but they're leaning into praying and fasting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And about 2 a.m. on that New Year's Day in 1901, a woman named Agnes Osmond, mm-hmm. she comes to Charles Parham and she says, I just remembered something studying the scripture. Every time they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, someone laid hands on them. And so she said to Charles Parham, would you lay your hands on me and pray for me in that way that I would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I got to read you this because I want I got to read exactly the account. It is unbelievable. 
<laughs> Charles Parham said as he prayed and laid his hands on her, he said, I, I laid my hands and prayed on her and I had barely said three sentences when the glory of God fell upon her. A halo seemed to surround her head and her face and she began speaking the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. Wow. Oh, my <laughs> so, God. Crazy. So what's incredible is at the turn of the century of the 1900s, mm-hmm. uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost had showed back up in the body of Christ. And it was marked by a woman being baptized in the Holy Ghost, praying in, in Chinese. Um, yeah. And from there, multiple people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And then Charles Parham receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And now they're like, wow, we have, we, we are empowered. Now we've got to tell everybody we've got to preach this message, this full gospel message. We've got to preach it. And so they begin to go and try to preach it and are met with absolute rejection. Um, you know, people are calling it weird doctrine is being condemned by church leaders. And eventually Charles Parham ends up losing that Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And, um, you know, and this through some crazy things, you know, don't have time to get into, but he ends up losing it after about two years max. And he, uh, he begins to travel a bit and finally lands in Houston, Texas. And this is about 1905. And at the same time, William J. Seymour is moving from Ohio, Indiana area, and he comes down to Houston, Texas. And in in Houston, he has this, you know, he's traveling, he speaks, he preaches the word of God, but he has this hunger for where are the, the manifested signs of God's power? Where's the Holy Presence of God? Where's the Holy Spirit? And Charles... Charles Parham begins to start a new Bible school in Houston, Texas. So story goes on. And, yes. so, <laughs> um, and so anytime you want me to stop or no, I'll just keep going. Fascinating. Like, thank you. The way that you're outlaying the story is so powerful. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank yeah. you. Thank you. I try my best. Um, and so, so William J. Seymour comes down to Houston, 1905. Charles Parham is there. William J. Seymour visits a small uh, 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 black church there um, in Houston, Texas, and he is met by a woman named Lucy Farrow. And Lucy Farrow is the, uh, I believe she's a re- she's a relative of okay. the abolitionist Frederick Douglass. But Lucy Farrow also worked in the household of Charles Parham. So, yeah, so so she's in Houston. Right. And so she's in Houston and she's a black woman and she hears William J. Seymour preach. And she is astounded at his preaching ability. And she says, we need you to come pastor our church. At that time, she's kind of pulling it together, kind of giving direction. And it's just beautiful, Layla, because because mm-hmm. it's women leading the body of Christ in the wow. early 1900s, you know? Wow. So, yeah. so she's leading this church, and she says, we need you to be the pastor of this church. She says that to William J. Seymour. He says, I, I, okay, I'd love to. Oh. So he he does kind of like an interim, a few months of pastoring there. And Lucy is the one that connects the dots for Parham and Seymour. And she speaks with Seymour and says, I I love your hunger and understand you're hungry for the things of the Holy Spirit. I need to introduce you to Charles Parham. You that's who you need to go to. He has a doctrine Mm -hmm. and understanding on the Holy Spirit and the outpouring Mm -hmm. of the Holy Ghost. And so William J. Seymour pursues uh, Parham. And Parham has a Bible school now in Houston, however, um, it's still segregated. So even though obviously slavery is done and all of that's done, but segregation is is at this time, as well as the Jim Crow laws are are at this time in expanding. And so Charles Parham honored 
some of that of the the just kind of the societal norm of segregation. So he did not let uh, William Seymour come into his class. It was an all whites mm-hmm. class at that at in a lot of them were night classes. So William J. Seymour, not being baptized in the Holy Ghost, but so hungry for the baptism of the Holy Ghost, sits in the hallway. And he sits in the hallway week after week, hearing this doctrine on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Charles Parham said, you can sit in the hallway and you can receive. And so he's, it's just, it's a beautiful picture, you know, of, of just hunger and desperation. And so he, he refused to be, you know, denied there. Um, And so, but he does build an incredible relationship with Charles Parham. And so they actually begin to travel and preach Parham preaching at white churches, uh, Seymour preaching at black churches and preaching on. And this is what's interesting. William J. Seymour was preaching on the baptism of the Holy Ghost and was not (laughs) baptized in the Holy Ghost. Wow. (laughs) And so he's like, he's preaching on how you have not received the Holy Ghost unless you pray in other tongues or speak in other tongues. And he ha- he can't he hasn't <laughs> had that experience himself. That's he crazy. just he just so genuinely believes the doctrine and he believes yeah. this is what the Bible says. This is right here. You can't ignore it. Um, and so that's the kind of man he was. Um, and after about a year, uh, a few months, uh, nearly about eight months or so of being in, in Houston, this interim pastorate, traveling a little bit. There's another woman that comes all the way from L.A. And this woman comes from L.A. and she is visiting family in Houston, but she stops on a Sunday at that church that William J. Seymour was pastoring there in Houston. And she hears him preach and she is so moved. And she says, we have to have him at our church in L.A. So she goes back to L.A. and tells her pastor, who's also a woman, just tell you, it's awesome. Um, and her, the woman's name of the, that's pastoring is named Julia Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. And Julia Hutch, Hutchinson, she uh, she tells her, "You need to have William J. Seymour. We need him here." The board agrees, the pastor agrees, and so she extends an invitation to William J. Seymour to come to L.A. and preach revival services. Um, And William J. Seymour receives that. He talks with Charles Parham about it. And he uh, Parham actually blesses him and financially even supports him um, and makes sure that he's able to get to L.A. Go and speak and preach the full gospel message. Go preach it there. So William J. Seymour is blessed into that. And this is now February of 1906. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. <laughs> right? Yeah. You just tell me when to stop. I'm well, good. Yeah. Well, we usually would um, talk about like some of the big events and some of the big works that these people are known for. So I think we're about to hit that like big event that we know William J. Seymour for. So can, yes. yeah, can you sort of give us some background and, and tell us about that? Okay, so he comes to the, yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) that's all the formation. And then he gets to uh, LA. And uh, in in February of 1906, he shows up and he is, he's going to preach these, uh, these messages and preach these revival services. The first message he preaches on a Sunday is you, he preaches from Acts chapter two, And he says, you have not received the Holy Ghost unless you speak in other tongues. And the whole church denies it. Even the pastor that invited him. No. Like completely like this is, this is heresy. (laughs) Oh my God. So so he comes back that Sunday night to preach for that evening service. The very second service and the doors are padlocked on him. Um, And the pastor and the board have shut it down. And they said, listen, you're not, you can preach, but you can't preach it. You can't preach that here. We're not, we're not hosting it. And so they brought them all the way to LA and, and shut down the services. Um, and so he, uh, he, there's one couple in the church that was so moved by his preaching that they said, I tell you what, come to our house wow. and we'll let you preach in our home. Wow. And so he takes that invitation 
And the thing about William J. Seymour for me is how would I feel as a pastor, you know, brought in to, yeah. to preach and now the pastor has locked the doors on me. Crazy. Um, I, you know, I'm like, man, I'm going home. But, yeah. um, you know, but he's he he just he just had this tenacity in him. And so he uh, he goes to this house and begins to preach services there and preaches Bible studies and speaking into this doctrine on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, at this point, he has not been baptized. He has not received the Holy Spirit in this way at all. And so he's preaching it before he sees it, you know, and sometimes God has you do that. He has you declare mm-hmm. something before you've experienced it. Um, and so he's he's doing that. And so this is in February 1906. He's preaching these services in this house on Asbury Lane. And what's interesting is the Asbury yeah. revival. Yes. That's happening, right. Amazing. Um, and so now the names are spelled different. The, the one Asbury revival is A-S-B-U-R-Y, but mm-hmm. the name of the couple, uh, that their home was, uh, oh, no, that, that was their last name, the Asburys. Um, and the, their last name was spelled A-S-B-E-R-R-Y. Um, and so just a little difference, but I just was reading that. I was like, wow, yeah. what in the world is God doing right now? Um, and so... And again, this is 1906. He's Mm -hmm. preaching there. And then there starts to become word spreading out around around L.A. of come hear this black man preach that has a new understanding on the Holy Ghost. So by March, it's not just black people attending. White people start attending. White people, some church leaders start attending. Other pastors start attending. And they start all contending and hungry for what is being preached, this New Mm -hmm. Testament church, give us the signs that the apostles Mm -hmm. had and give us the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so this is over that month of March and into April. And then by April, and let me pull the right date because this is where it just gets, it gets crazy. April 9th, on April 9th, um, William J. Seymour is, uh, he leaves the home that he's staying in and is walking down the street to that night's service. And April 9th, 1906, he sees a man and this man is named Charles Lee. And Charles Lee is on the street um, and he is praying and he asks for William J. Seymour, Edward Lee. It's Edward Lee, I'm sorry. Um, and Edward Lee asks for William J. Seymour to pray for him to be healed. And so uh, William J. Seymour stops, prays for the man to be healed. And Edward Lee then begins to say, I had a vision of me receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray for me that I might receive this? And William J. Seymour lays hands on him. And Edward Lee gets baptized in the Holy Ghost. The first person in L.A. um, to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's on the street. So, and I just believe that's what God's doing right now is he's bringing the move of God to the street. Yeah. And, um, and it's not just going to be in the steeples. It's not going to be in the yeah. church house. You know, the Asbury revival happening on college campus. Um, you know, like God's, God is, is moving in extravagant ways. And the church yeah. has to join the movement of God, not yeah. be the center of, of, just everything, you know, um, God, God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And so, um, the church has to be willing to break some of those norms to really let the Holy spirit move the way he's wanting to. So, so Edward Lee receives the baptism of the Holy spirit and William J. Seymour is pumped because it's the first one under his ministry that has received this. So he goes to that night service and he tells everyone and everyone is so ecstatic, but they're also desperate. And yeah. in God's spirit at that same time fills that room, floods that room. And seven people fall out under the power of the Holy Ghost. They're yeah. praying in the Holy Ghost. And then others begin to kind of shout and pray in the Holy Ghost. Yeah. The daughter of the couple that was hosting them, the Asbury's daughter, she runs out of the house because she saw all these people fall. And she's like going to tell the neighbors, 
come help this wow. crazy in here. Look what's going on. Others that are in the neighborhood, they begin to hear this sound of the, the people praying in tongues rising. And so they're like, what is this sound? What's going on in this house? And so they begin to come. And at that time, people that had gotten baptized in the Holy Ghost or even people that had fell out under the power of the Holy Ghost stand up, go to the front porch and begin to preach about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and begin to declare it. There was this woman, Jenny Moore. Mm -hmm. She fell out in the Holy Ghost, okay? (laughs) And as she falls out, um, she's there for a bit. She gets up uh, about an hour or so later and she hops on the piano and begins to play the piano perfectly. She had never learned piano, but from that day on, she could always play the piano excellently. Wow. What the heck? These signs and wonders are crazy. So so this pours out April 9th, 1906. Next day, hundreds are at this house. I mean, it's just exploded. And people are trying to cram into this house to hear about the Holy Spirit, to receive this outpouring. William J. Seymour, others are sharing and preaching this. Mm -hmm. And over that first week, so this is April 9th, all the way through about the 13th or so, that they're at this house. And by the end, they they nearly got about 1,200 people in in and around this house. Oh my God. On the Holy Ghost. Layla, people were being baptized in the Holy Ghost across the street. Wow. Listening, listening to just the preaching. They weren't even in the house, just receiving the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Wow. And it got wow. to where there were so many people trying to cram, the house ended up falling. And so, oh yeah, yeah, so they, they literally brought the roof down, <laughs> um, you know? So, so as, but no one was hurt. Everybody was good. Um, and, but they were like, we need another place. So they found a old abandoned Anglican uh, Methodist church, uh, Episcopalian Methodist church. And it was in the African-American district there in L.A., downtown. And they ended up uh, uh, taking that. And that is what became known as at 312 Azusa Street. And that's where Azusa Street revival took place. And it was an abandoned um church it had become a warehouse at one point it had become a stable at one point which is interesting because we know what happened in the stable um so Mm -hmm. i'm just you know um and so they get there churches Mm -hmm. donate people begin to donate to get the glass Mm -hmm. fixed the 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 windows fixed to kind of dress it up a bit trying to make it fit for people to be able to come Mm -hmm. and so they make pews out of like wooden planks and sitting on nail kegs they just figure it out and uh william j seymour he just put two boxes on top of each other put a cotton cloth over it and that was the pulpit and set it in the front and they said let's have revival um and that was it that was it and so by april 17th they are fully in this azusa street and there are 13 to 1500 people showing up nearly every day. Crazy. Um, and they're hungry, the mm-hmm. outpouring of God's spirit and people begin to, uh, be sent to investigate actually LA times sends a reporter on, and, and I believe it was around that April 17th timeframe he, they sent a reporter to report on what's going on there. They've been hearing some reports and different things. And uh, the reporter says that he says that it was a group of loud and boisterous people babbling. It was like a, <laughs> it was a, it, just babbling in, uh, in weird languages, <laughs> you know, foaming, you know, he <laughs> used some of that, those words, you know, shaking and all of that. Now, what they did, what's interesting is that that day, that same time when that report, it was released in L.A. Times, that was mm-hmm. also a day where a huge earthquake had happened in um, in California um, in another city. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people were shaken up and looking for hope. And mm-hmm. so even though, you know, L.A. Times had did it to kind of mock the movement, it actually promoted the movement 
and wow, more people started to move and come and, and hear and, and be a part of Azusa Street Revival. And then by the time you get into May, May is when the attendance began to pick up. Now, the summer had kind of a, a you know, a lower attendance than than what that 1500 mark but by the fall it was full-fledged mm -hmm. but it was three services every day for wow. over a thousand days wow so the azusa street revival went from 1906 to 1909 so about wow. three years and just just consistent outpouring in the stories wow my god and William J. Seymour, in the middle of all of this, mm. is most times actually not preaching at that point. Mm. Most times he's just found praying, weeping on his face. Um, one of the guys that was a part of uh, the, the ministry, a key figure, um, uh, Frank Bartleman, he said, you could always find William J. Seymour with his head in a box praying in the Holy Spirit. And uh, and I got to read you this quote from him because it just, oh my goodness, it just messed me up. <laughs> he said, he said, Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty shoe boxes, one on top of the other. He usually kept his head inside the top one during the meeting and prayer. There was no pride here. In that old building with its low rafters and bare floors, God took strong men and women to pieces and put them back together again for his glory. The religious ego preached its own funeral sermon quickly. Wow. And it, it's just, it's it's unbelievable. Um, there's another story. So I literally, I could tell you probably oh, four other stories. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, maybe could you tell us like, you know, what impact did um, this have and did William J. Seymour have both at the time, maybe through the stories that you're talking about, but then also what impact has he had on the church like historically now since yes. then, Just, you know, Perfect. since that time, obviously he's had such a huge legacy. So, yeah, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that direct impact and then also like the trajectory of that throughout? Perfect. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely. <laughs> there was a story of a young woman. It was a 19-year-old girl. Her name was Kathleen Scott. And uh, she was in, in the building. There was a lower floor and an upper floor. And so they called the upper floor the upper room, you know, obviously. <laughs> yeah, genius, of course. Genius. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and so in between services, they had a morning, a afternoon, and a night service. In between services, the building was open for just prayer. So it became prayer room and people would just be on their face, praying in the Holy, Holy ghost all over laid all up. And then they would ring a bell, like a cow bell of saying mm -hmm. service was starting. And so, so almost like the come and get it, come and get you. Yeah. Something. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Come get some food. Um, yeah. And uh, so there was a time where this young lady, Kathleen Scott, she was in the upper room area. She's laying on her face, praying before God. She hears the bell start to ring and she's getting up and starts to move her way. And everybody starts to shuffle in for service and for the preaching of the word and for worship and all those elements. Um, there was a man that showed up in Azusa, at Azusa Street that day um, for the first time. He walks upstairs. And as he's walking upstairs, Kathleen Scott is about to come downstairs and she points at him and prays in the Holy Ghost, speaks in the Holy Ghost for about for about a few moments. And the man is completely stunned, grabs her by the hand and takes her straight to the front. <laughs> and he he takes her straight to the front and he's he's a guest. He's never been there. So he <laughs> and this is right at the beginning of the the service starting and uh and no one stopped him he gets to the front and he begins to say this he said i am a jew and i came to this city to investigate this speaking in tongues mm. no person in this city knows my first name or my last name mm. as i am here under an assumed name 
I go to hear preachers for the purpose of taking their sermons apart and using them in lecturing against the Christian religion. Okay. He said this, this girl, as I entered the room, started speaking in the perfect Hebrew language. Wow. She told me my first name, my last name. She told me why I was in the city, what my occupation in life was, and she called me to repent. She wow. told me things about my life, which it would be impossible for any person in this city to know. Wow. And so he amazing. He breaks down. He mm. begins to weep bitterly right mm. there in the altar. And it's it just was it was the second Pentecost. Azusa Street was the second Pentecost. So what we had in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, in the outpouring on the body of Christ, to the empowerment of us as believers to preach the gospel, to perform signs and wonders, to walk in the power of the Holy Ghost, what happened there in Acts 2 is now happening again in the body of Christ in a significant way. Um, And, you know, studying through church history, you see that speaking in tongues and really the flowing of the Holy Ghost, it seemed to diminish after the first first century Christians and into the second century. And by about the third century, we started living off of the church fathers. And I love studying the church fathers, you know, in the writings and 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 all of those elements. But what it seemed to be is that as the apostles died off, And as those first century Christians in that experience, that fresh experience in the Holy Ghost, we begin to not live so much off of those apostles' writings and begin to live off of different figures that were being raised up as well. Um, But their Christianity seemed to go more to intellectualism. And I believe that we should be intellectual. But you begin to see that the the signs and wonders of what was taking place mm. was not happening as consistently. And this is what kind of starts to support the case of why some people are like, well, it was just for those first century Christians. And, it, you know, mm. people believe in the sensationalism and all of those elements. Mm. But the idea is that really speaking in tongues, Pentecost, uh, it stopped and then it started again. And then it stopped and it started again and again and again. And so at different points in hit, in church history, you see outpourings of God's spirit. And there's documentation of people praying in other tongues, speaking in other tongues, all of that taking place. But not until this time frame with Parham and William J. Seymour do we ever actually see a doctrine established of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. and. Out of that, out of Azusa Street, Mm -hmm. it has swept across the face of Christianity. It it was a worldwide Mm -hmm. sending revival. It was really uh, believed that people were literally willing to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and go to another nation they had never been. They don't know the language, but believe the Holy Ghost would give them the words to say. Amazing. And and so missionaries is sweeping the globe. Now, in 1904 and 1905, we have the Welsh revival mm-hmm. that's happening. And ah, oh, we ain't got time. We, yeah. you know, <laughs> we need to do another episode on Evan Roberts. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, and so it's just amazing what's taking yeah. place there. Um, mm. And there in each revival, Layla, it's like it's marked by something. It, yes. It's and it's marked by something that is to be in, incorporated into the body yeah. forever. Yeah. And so the Welsh revival is is marked greatly by great repentance and and transformation in that nation and and it began to sweep a bit across nations, but this Azusa Street revival is marked by this Pentecostal outpouring of God's spirit. Yeah. that uh that forever changed people um and the influence of it it's really it's really even hard to calculate um but you have Amy Simple McPherson that's a product of it you have the assemblies of god that's a product of it you have the church of god that's a product of it you have the four square movement that's a product of it you have the pentecostal movement and then as you get past 
in, or more into the uh, the fifties and the uh, the sixties. You you have the healing movements and the charismatic movements and the faith movements. So then, what's interesting is where we are at uh, CFNI, for example, Christ for the Nations, um, completely influenced by uh, by this Azusa Street revival. Wow. And so, um, what's what's the way it connects actually is that Charles Parham, who we talked about, who was from uh, in Houston, mm-hmm. as this outpouring is taking place. William J. Seymour sends word and says, I need help. I need you to send people. Um, and so he sends people at the beginning, about that April 1906 timeframe. Mm-hmm. But as the outpouring starts to happen, and now these signs and wonders, and it really begins to break forth, mm-hmm. he sends word, says, Charles, you got to come check this out. You got you to <laughs> see this. Now, what happens, though, is Charles Parham comes and he actually, he actually denounces the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He actually uh, said that it was uh, out of order. It was mm-hmm. chaotic. Um, and, you know, part of the, the, it's kind of mixed over why essentially did he say that, but it's believed that he, Charles Parham's views for the baptism of the Holy Spirit was more, the Holy Spirit is to empower us for us to go perform signs and wonders to, to set forth revival, to be, be on mission. But a lot of that honoring of the segregational lines was still there. Um, and the thing about the Azusa street revival mm-hmm. is you saw black people, wow. white people, yeah. Asian people, Spanish, mm-hmm. Hispanic people. You saw all mm-hmm. cultures, praying in the Holy Ghost, in services together. It tore down segregational walls. And um, and so one, one person said literally that the blood of Jesus washed away the color line. Wow. And in the idea of our skin separating us and all nations were being impacted and then it swept across the globe. And, um, and so the, the, kind of difference is Parham believed this was for uh, the empowerment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. William J. Seymour m- believed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to bring us together. And he, he believed that it was, it was, it was meant to bring us closer together mm-hmm. um, and to tear down these walls mm-hmm. and to see, and to see this outpouring of God's spirit through, through unity and through loving one another. Um, now, Charles Parham, actually took leaders from the Azusa Street Revival. Um, As he condemned it, he took some of his leaders, took some of those that identified with him, and they went elsewhere in more Midwest of U.S., and they began to facilitate revival services. And there was outpouring there. And, and, And that's where a lot of the stream of the healing movements and um, John G. Lake and, and other pieces are, are influenced there. Um, and, and then through Parham is where, um, for us at CFNI, Gordon Lindsay, who was, who was unbelievable in, um, in the healing movement and seeing the hand of God released over people's lives. Um, he was greatly influenced through that. And so Azusa Street, reach to where there's this outpouring in the Midwest of America. Um, but it also swept across different nations and, and across mm-hmm. the globe. Another thing that happened during the Zusa street revival is they established the, um, the apostolic faith. And it was like a, um, it was almost like a newsletter that they established during that time, like a newspaper. And um, when they first started, they had a few, a few thousand subscribed already um, that wanted to hear the news about revival. But at the peak of it, they had 40 to 50,000 people wow. across the world Crazy. subscribed to re- it's insane. And this was in 1906, 1907, no Facebook, yeah, like <laughs> no printed, printed newsletters, right? Yes. Crazy. Printing, 
printing newsletters, newspapers, and sending them about miracles, signs, and wonders in what God is doing at Azusa Street. And it was sweeping the globe. Um, And what's sad, though, is towards the end, and towards the end of 1909, a lot of this falls apart. Um, William J. Seymour was really heartbroken over Parham not seeing it the way he saw it. Um, you honestly, people could say he did get offended, um, because he actually began to remove white people out of any leadership. Um, and the other piece though, that was a factor as well, is that he had that newsletter, the apostolic faith, um, and, uh, it was being spread and, and reaching all the nations. Well, it had a subscribers list. And, and, and addresses and all people that were a part of it. And two of his main leaders, two ladies that were over that list took it and went to Washington and literally crippled the movement. And so, you know, cause back then you didn't have any backup, you know, yeah, you didn't absolutely a, no database to, right. To you don't have a on. database. Yeah. And so, so that was forever lost. And, um, wow. and the movement began to die off. The revival began to stop. Um, William J. Seymour stayed in L.A. He married Jenny Moore. And part of the reason why that those two ladies that went off with the list, one of them wanted to marry William J. Seymour. Yeah. Yeah. Scandal. Yeah. He <laughs> married. Like, you don't want to marry me? Bye. Yeah. See you later. You know what? Yeah. I don't need you. Know you. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> So he uh, he takes off and uh, she she takes off and uh, he marries Jenny Moore. Um, and uh, as he's there, he stays pastoring there um, in L.A. for the rest of his life up till about 1922, I believe, is when he passed away. And um, he passed away from heart palpitations and difficulty. And one person said he passed away from heartbreak. Um, and the church he uh, pastored there never got above 50 to 60 people. Um, and he just say committed there and it was, and, and it became all an all black church. And so that's why a lot of history Layla doesn't necessarily always speak towards William J. Seymour because it speaks towards Azusa street sometimes, you know, but, um, his impact in Azusa street, and really on church history uh, is often very much skipped over and overlooked of who this figure was. Um, a lot of those guys, they, you know, was sad as they didn't end well. Um, so, um, so when you look at what is the impact today, yeah. the Pentecostal movement, the outpouring of God's spirit sweeping into the church, and now to this day, it's it's nearly swept across in n- nearly every facet of Christianity. Yeah, um, and, and, and we would say it's swept across in the aspect of the charismatic movement. Yeah. So it kind of morphed from the Pentecostal movement to the charismatic movement. Mm-hmm. And the charismatic movement referring more to expressiveness, more to liveliness, more to uh, people being able to worship in, in, in exuberance and all of those elements um, and all of that dynamic being brought to the body, that's mm-hmm. nearly swept across into multiple churches now to where mm-hmm. they, incorporate, they incorporate some facet of you being to express yourself um, versus what was the norm especially in the early 1900s. And so that's where a lot of that impact comes. And then a lot of those other denominations that came out of that movement and out of that revival. Wow. So inspiring to hear that story. Thank you so much, um, Pastor Quinton. Can you maybe, I don't know if you have any quotes, but do you have any quotes maybe from William J. Seymour that you could share? Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Perfect. Uh, Let's see here. I got two quotes. He said at one point, he said, I can say through the power of the spirit that wherever God can get a people that will come together in one accord, in one mind, in the word of God, the baptism of the Holy Ghost will fall upon them like as at 
Cornelius's house. Wow, and, come on. And, and then this one is my favorite quote. He says, the Pentecostal power, when you sum it all up, is just more of God's love. Wow. If it does not bring more love, it is simply a counterfeit. Wow. That's powerful. Powerful. So powerful. Yeah. What a profound thought too. Yeah. And I love that because for me, I think what I'm seeing in, in the nations at the moment with this revival is that just a return to first love, that first love um, that Revelation talks about and that first love yes. for Jesus. So I love that he's articulating that, that, you know, as the Holy Spirit's being poured out, as revival's breaking out, it should deepen our love both for God and then for brothers and sisters and, and for the lost as well. I think that's powerful. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, and I think we're seeing that in this generation, mm. if it doesn't change how you treat people, if it doesn't change how you how you love one another, they, they really want nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so there's this true, genuine hunger for unity yeah. and for yes. the real thing. Yeah. Um, for real encounter, for real, you know, not the uh, showiness, not the yeah. doesn't matter how perfect your sermon is or how yeah. perfect the lights are. You know, just give us Jesus and um, and let it yeah. change our world. You know, mm -hmm. that's really a cry of Gen Z is the world is broken. It needs to change. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. if we if we believe in the creator of the world and in that yeah. Jesus can shape all things, then then there needs to be some reshaping seen visibly in front of us. Yes. Um and so it's really, I, I think it's timely, you know, yeah. um, the other thing when you study through church history is you see mm -hmm. the times of outpouring almost yeah. in, in opposition to what's going on in history. So yes. during, yeah, you know, during that <laughs> time of Azusa street, Jim mm -hmm. Crow laws were the highest yeah. at their, at their highest strength and God was bringing people together. Amazing. Um, mm -hmm. There was a there was a a revival happening during the Civil War. There was a revival that uh, the Great Awakening, the first one, took place mm -hmm. right before the American Revolution. And it's like God is fueling His people mm -hmm. for what is coming to sustain, but really to pour out His Spirit in the body of Christ to be a light in the hour that's coming. And I just feel like I feel like we're due. I yes. feel like yeah. I feel like God's ready, um, and He's already, we're already starting to see some of it. Amen. So good. Um, we usually like to finish up our episodes just with like maybe a fun fact or like any crazy story or quirky fact about the person. Do you have anything that you've come across in your studies about William J. Seymour that's maybe like a fun story or like a quirky fact about him? Man. Because the funny one would have been about the, you know, the, the ladies, the, the lady the, that got all yeah. butt hurt, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I'll tell you this, uh, you know, C, C.H. Mason, who okay. also is a hugely overlooked African-American figure. Um, and I'm telling you, you, you study C.H. Mason, it, it's just unbelievable. Um but he visited the uh, Azusa Street Revival, and he was the one that also talked with William J. Seymour and said, stay away from that one. <laughs> and so, oh. so, and he was, I'm telling you, if you look up C.H. Mason and the way he loved people, um, I mean, he was a black man that, uh, that was so uh, revered and honored by wow. so many people, white people, white significant leaders in the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, and so for him to say, stay away from that one. Yeah. So it needed to happen. Wow. <laughs> wow. No, that's hilarious. I love it. I love all the scandal and the drama. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Pastor Quinton. Um, is there anything else that you want to share about William J. Seymour? Anything that, you know, our watchers, our listeners should know about him uh, before we, we head off? You know, I think I think it's just important to um, to really know that the main thing is the main thing, yeah. And um, and that that is the love of God, not mm -hmm. just in the expression towards God, 
but the way we love others. Yeah. And, and I think that's really the message of his life. I think that's really the message of, you know, you can have outpouring, right? What does, what does first Corinthians 13 say? Mm -hmm. Even if I prophesy in tongues and speak in Mm -hmm. tongues of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy symbol. And I think that's what has to be the anchor for us is that it, you, you know, we know people that can pray in the spirit and they're still mean as a snake, Mm -hmm. you know, like God has the ability not only to change you, to resurrect you, to raise you to new life, but he also has the ability to change your character and how you love people and how you truly see each person as his child and love them. And I think, that's what's going to change the world. And that's what we need. We need power, but it's power, love in a sound mind. You know, uh, that's what we need. And it's all together. And so I think that's really the message. And that's where where William J.C. Moore's uh, heart was. So beautiful. Thanks so much, Pastor Quinton. If um, our watchers and listeners want to connect with you, uh, get in touch with your ministry, how can they find you? Sure. Yeah. So I'm on social media, um, mainly Instagram. I don't do the Tic Tac. Um, <laughs> the Tic Tac Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, mainly on Instagram. Um, my uh, user uh, tag is at Quinn Carter, Q-U-I-N Carter 90. And, um, and yeah, you'll just see a bunch of posting about my family as well <laughs> as... Um, you know, about uh, just what God's doing here. Um, We're really excited for this upcoming summer, what God's about to do. And then also I'm excited. I'm, I'm preparing some resources. So there'll be um, some opportunity as well to You've got a book coming out. Hey. Um, Yes, I do. Can you tell us Um, a little bit about what it's about? Okay. So (laughs) the book is going to be called The Unwrapping. And it is about the story of Lazarus. Um, but what it, what's really the heart behind it is this a discipleship companion guide. So it's, Mm. it's geared towards helping a pastor or a leader walk someone through a journey of being unwrapped, um, over a course of weeks together. Um, and so that's really part of my heart is I want to see people equipped and, and able to disciple and lead in their in the in the local church and i think it's going to be a great resource and help so amazing oh thank you so much for that pastor quinton um we'll be praying for your all your conferences coming up for youth for the nations as well Uh, make sure you connect with him on instagram thank you so much for joining us pastor quinton and for everyone else who's joined us today on the eagle and child podcast as well we'll see you again next time Thanks so much for tuning into the Eagle and Child podcast. That's all from us for today. If you want to support us, you can like, subscribe or drop us a review. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Eagle and Child podcast. We'll catch you next time. Much love.